0: This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 139 of the Dressage Radio Show, brought to you with the generous support of Equestrian Collections. Welcome to the program. On this week's episode we continue our focus on judging with an in-depth look at the analysis of dressage marks. Wayne Channon will be here to unravel some mysteries with David Stickland. We begin though with horse and hounds Alice Collins previewing British prospects in this Olympic year right after this commercial break. Equestrian Collections has a New Year closeout sale of popular boots, blankets, shirts, breeches, vests and much more. And while you're there, check out the outlet sale too, which has 70% off regular prices every day. Enjoy these great savings by visiting the website at equestriancollections.com. And if you use coupon code HRN at the checkout, you'll get $10 off your next order of $100 or more. Equestrian Collections is a participating retailer of the Horse World Gives Back campaign. Well, joining me now from London is the Horse and Hound dressage editor, Alice Collins. Alice, welcome back and Happy New Year. And to you, thank you. Nice to have you back. I know it's a quiet time for shows over there. You don't have the luxury of the climate that they have in Florida, but still things are happening and you're riding high, aren't you, after Olympia last year. There must be a great attitude of optimism amongst British dressage right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a lot of the top people are talking about, you know, could 2012 be our year for, for gold individually and, you know, fingers crossed for the team as well and um, yeah there's a real feeling of
0: optimism amongst dress in this country it's, it's really exciting well i know as i said there's not an awful lot happens in the winter you just got some indoor shows haven't you but i'd like to if you would uh, give us a sample of what was what we should expect over there at the venues uh, in the late winter and early spring kicking off the season well what happens nationally is that um we have our seasons divided into two, uh, the
1: winter championships and the summer championships. And the qualifying classes for the summer championships actually start on the 1st of December. So on the 1st of December last year, people started to try and get their qualifications. And what happens here is you have to qualify through regional competitions um, to a regional championship and then the winners and the highest place combinations from the regionals go through to the winters and the summer championships. Um, and so at the moment we're in the early phases of the summer champion, uh, of the summer qualifying season and we are just about to go into the winter championships which start in the, uh, uh, the, the winter regional, sorry, which start in the first week of February and go through for about a month after that.
0: Of course, what British dressage is enjoying now is this incredible resurgence at international level, which has a motivating effect, doesn't it, throughout the levels?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then people are starting to think that we can do it. And if you work and you get the horses, then, uh, then we can be up there with Germany and, and, and with Holland as you know, one of the best nations for dressage in the world.
0: You know, it is extraordinary, given the length of my memory, to see British dressage come around the way it has, Alice. We've talked about this before, but, you know, it is extraordinary to think that, you know, the development of the sport is bringing it up to the level, you know, equal to the event riders, um, you know, because there was always great things expected yeah, and, yeah. and delivered with the eventers. But with the dressage now to be this competitive and be be this much, I mean, favourites for a medal you know at olympic level is is extraordinary isn't it
1: yeah absolutely i mean it's all very well you know having competitive national championships but to to be up there now on the world stage as well is so exciting and i think that you know charlotte's going
0: to give pretty much everybody there in Wellington and run for her money this, uh, this January. Well, I want to talk about that, of course. As I mentioned, Florida is really heating up in every way now. All the dressage riders are down there and we are going to be welcoming both Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin for the, right. the Masters um, at the end of this month. So let's talk about those two rides because she's riding high off her success in Olympia last year in London and Carl has a new ride, temporary new ride though. So let's uh, talk about those two.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, Carl is going to be taking Fiona Bigwood's WEG team horse, Atlantico, uh, over to Florida. It's quite, uh, quite bold of him. That'll be the first show that he's done with the horse. Um, I understand that Fiona wanted to sell the horse, and it's been with Patrick Kittle at his yard, uh, but it hasn't sold. So she's now decided to keep him, and Carl's going to keep him ticking over, um, which I think is an understatement for Carl riding your horse, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, But uh, I know that, you know, Fiona's very excited to be pregnant again. And uh, I think she's
0: planning on returning to competition quite soon after she has her baby. So she's given Carl the ride, and he's uh, you know taking it literally in, in, with both hands and going right to the top, isn't he? I mean, there's some serious prize money there if, if he yeah, was successful yeah. over there. I,
1: I, and I know that everybody was quite disappointed that Totalas pulled out of Florida, and I think that the organizers might have had a bit of a flap and got on the phone and, and begged him a bit and <laughs> probably gave him some more motivation.
0: Well, I think that that's my understanding from here. They were thinking, well, Charlotte's coming. How can we possibly get Carl to come? So, yeah, <laughs> some Charlotte. Yeah, Charlotte Charlotte told
1: me at the end of last year that her and Carl were not going to run together at shows so often because they really value each other's help at shows and they were getting times that were too close together and therefore they weren't able to help each other up in in the warm-up. And so I think that is generally the plan for this year um, although that doesn't seem to have quite gone to plan for Florida.
0: Yeah, It's a very good point isn't it? You know, um, especially with them both being so competitive now and they're going to always be drawn late too, aren't they? Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think,
1: you know, you, you can't underestimate the value of of each helping the other in their warm-up.
0: No, oh, quite so, quite so. Well, it'll be interesting to watch them. I will, of course, be down there to watch the Masters, uh, the CDI Five Star, and the Three Star in Wellington later this month. Uh, now, let, let's talk about Charlotte and, and this horse because uh, obviously it, she's just just getting better and better, and, and she must be feeling you know a million dollars now, and she may be well be mili- wi- willing and winning a million dollars at this rate. <laughs> well, I really hope so. And you know, if there's any horse that
1: she can do it on, it is Vallegra. He is the most generous spirited beautiful energetic horse you could imagine and we've actually got a feature in the magazine where um, Lucinda Green who's a top event rider from the UK went and rode him and she was almost speechless and she said that it was almost enough to
0: make her want to stop jumping which coming from somebody who's <laughs> been around badminton multiple times is a serious serious thing to say That's interesting. I'll have to tease her about that when she comes on the Eventing Radio show again. (laughs) Well, you know, obviously a horse in a million for Charlotte, and it's launched her into the big time, you know. But does she have any other horses coming up behind to support her? I think that for now he is
1: her her Grand Prix horse. Um, She's got a couple of youngsters that she's just bought uh, with the money from selling Fernandez. Uh, But I think so far as Grand Prix prospects go, he is the only one that she's got. And we did hear lots of scary, scary rumours at the end of last year that one or both of Carl and Charlotte's horses had been sold, but luckily they were just that. They were rumours and they weren't true. And Utopia and... and, Allegro will both be under British ownership on the 31st of December last year which means that they cannot be ridden by any other nation in the Olympics so we
0: all breathe a huge sigh of relief on the 1st of January <laughs> yeah. There's always this scurry in an Olympic or pre-Olympic year for uh, nations to get their hands yeah, on exactly. some um, Olympic horsepower. Well let's talk about some of the other riders that are coming up through the ranks over there Alice because you've you obviously got a lot of riders that we maybe haven't heard of over here yet but there's such a depth to British dressage these days
1: yeah exactly um we've got quite a few riders now doing well at grand prix and, and knocking on the door internationally i mean we've got um sarah millis who trains with kira kirkland um, she's got a new grand prix ride and her and dan sheriff who rides a stallion called bayford hall Laleo, they were both just been competing abroad recently and they came sixth and seventh in the grand prix and they're you know they're riding relatively young and relatively inexperienced horses so those are definitely two combinations to watch Um, And we've also got uh, Amy Stovold with her lovely Briar horse, McBrien. Um, It's another one, a really, really nice horse, very talented, doesn't have any major weaknesses. Um, But, you know, they're quite an inexperienced international partnership. And so it's just going to be about time for Amy getting the horse, you know, around on the circuit and seeing what she can do with it. Perhaps, you know, a couple of years too early, the Olympics, for that
0: combination, but definitely one to watch. Who does she train with, Alice? Uh, I don't actually know. (laughs) Okay. Um, so, who, yes, of course, a, we've,
1: go we've got the uh, season combination of Emil Foray with Elm Gardens Marquis, who is an unbelievably hot horse. He's by Michelino, which is obviously Laura Beckensteiner's Alf is also by Michelino. I think that's a, a sire that you'll see more and more Grand Prix horses from. Um, But yes, he's a very, very hot horse. And then Emil chose not to ride him at Olympia because the horse got quite upset there last year. And I think that he's quite dependent on the atmosphere in an arena and having it not too intense for him. But if Emil can keep a lid on him and and, and find a way of riding him in full power and relaxation, it's a sensational horse.
0: And what will Elf be doing? When you mentioned Elf and Laura Bechtolsheimer... Obviously, their schedule will be totally focused on the olympic games, and we'll have to discuss selection at some point but let's consider what he might be doing. Do you have a sense of what his outings will be? Is there anything that they have to any mandatory outings for them in the spring?
1: Well, I spoke to Laura um, after Olympia last year, and she said that you know he 's an older horse now he 's in his Late teens, I think 17 this year, and he doesn't need to be going to lots and lots of shows. Um, you know, she doesn't need to be putting lots of miles on the clock. And so I think she'll do a couple of shows with him. But her absolute focus is London 2012, and she won't do anything which might jeopardize that.
0: No, quite. What a powerful, potentially very powerful team, isn't it? Wendy? Yeah, and, and, you
1: know, I don't think it would be fair not to mention Gareth Hughes with Classic Man. He's won two international Grand Prix this year and of course we've got richard davidson who's doing very well on the world cup scene with the lovely hiscox
0: artemis yes absolutely um well th- there's a there's a handful of, of potential team members anyway isn't there? right there mm. and and so uh, what about young riders let's let's uh, get a sense of you know what young riders are coming up in and any talent there we should be keeping an eye out for
1: um, well, Alice Oppenheimer is continuing to do really well. Um, she's just out of young riders now, but uh, she's a very talented horse producer. They breed and they breed and produce the horses themselves under the Headmore Stud banner, um, you know, which is pretty impressive. And uh, you know, she's 25 or so, and she's already produced a horse to Grand Prix. Um, although she did, uh, she did actually come off in this week, as she put on her
0: Facebook page. So she wasn't very happy about the start of 2012. But oh dear! She's a very talented rider, anyway. <laughs> And, and who else should we th- be looking out for? Um, Alex Hardwick was
1: also competing abroad recently, and she's got a lovely string of horses. Her and her mother produced them together, and she's another one that's you know, really, really talented rider um, and, and one to
0: watch because I think that she's going to be competing internationally a lot more, and she's got the horsepower to do it as well. Well, lots of horsepower there and uh, talented riders. And, you know, I think it, it's just going to get better and better over there, isn't it? It must be really exciting for you in your position, Alice, to be watching dressage at, so closely at this point in its uh, evolution. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, but, but also exciting for me is I'm the sport horse editor as well. And we've just
1: had the um, British Equestrian Federation uh, Awards ceremony for that. And Woodlander Stud were very, did very, very well. Um, and I think that we're all very excited to see Woodlander Farouche come out this year and see what she can do, um, because up until now she's only competed in age classes. And so I think that there's going to be a point to be proved there to, uh, to show that she is really going the right way up the ladder towards Grand Prix.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Now, where would be the first competitions you would be heading to to cover for Horse and Hound? Um, I think that Lynn is planning on taking her to Vidaban in France. Um, I don't
1: think she's going to be doing anything in the UK before that, um, so that'll be early spring. Uh, yeah, my 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 money's on Farouche. Wherever she goes, whatever she does, my money is on her.
0: I think she's going to save them. And and how about you? Where will you be going to cover for Horse and Hound? Um, we haven't actually decided the spring schedules yet. Um, there's quite a lot
1: going on internationally, but also you know for us in the UK. The regional championships are important. You know, we, have to, we cater for the grassroots rider as well as top level here. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, w- winning a regional championship for somebody can be impo- as important as winning an international Grand Prix for, for a professional rider. And uh, so uh, I like to split my time between the two.
0: Absolutely. Well, we cover it all here on the Dressage Radio Show, of course. Now, will you be coming over to Florida? Does Horse and Hand get to send you over to the Sunshine? I'm working on it. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you saw with two British representatives, that that I would have thought justifies it. We'll put a good word in for you, Alice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we should mention also that Horse and Hound is now available in digital format on the Horse and Hound's right. website. So you can be reading Horse and Hound as it comes out in England, wherever you are in the world, by uh, joining the the page over there. That we'll put a link to that, and uh, you can sign up for subscription. For uh, it fra- hot off the press, well, hot off the uh, website these days, isn't it? It's marvelous. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of uh, a lot of your readers will be glad of that because they won't have to wait for their copy to drop on their doormat. Well, Alice, thank you very much for the update. We'll get you back here next month, and maybe we would be talking about some uh, English uh, success in the Florida sunshine. I certainly hope so. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Chris. Britain's Wayne Channon is the Secretary General of the International Dressage Riders Club, and he joins me now. Wayne, welcome back.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be back.
0: And it's good to have you back because you keep coming up with these wonderful ideas for topics for the show. And this week you've brought along a guest with you, haven't you?
2: Yes, that's uh, David Stickland. David, I've known David for about three years now. And David is uh, one of the most interesting characters in dressage, but not in dressage. Just to give you a little bit of background, David, um, I met about three years ago when um, he talked to me about um, via email about a little article I'd written on dressage judging. And it turned out David was a global expert in statistics. He works at, the, uh, at CERN in Geneva on the nuclear, you know, the Large Hadron Collider, the nuclear facility there, on assignment from Princeton. So he really is a real-life statistician. And it turns out his wife is very much into dressage and has a dressage yard. His daughter's right dressage, and he knows a lot about it and he became, he's become known, he's practically taken over dressage uh, statistics and in fact is now known as the man who judges the judges. I'm sorry if I've given you a very um, uh, difficult introduction there but it's, it's, uh, it's true, you are the man who knows more about what goes on in dressage at the detail level than anybody else I'd say.
3: Well, uh, I think you're being very generous but I, I enjoy it tremendously and uh, it sort of puts together the two things that I do which is one is I just I love playing with numbers because that's my that's my job, and uh, I enjoy dressage a lot. And um, uh, along the way, thanks to your introduction to the topic, actually, thanks to your article, I've uh, I've just enjoyed myself tremendously. And uh, uh, and I think I like to think that I'm sort of making a few contributions to the sport as well, which which is one are. that my whole family is in.
2: Well, you are. You've taught me really what are the facts behind what my feelings were. You know, as writers, we all talk about I was judged badly, it should have been better there, it should have been different. But in fact, you've put the uh, the facts behind that and you've shown where we were wrong and often where we were right. And you've now given us all really a language we can speak to each other in. Can you, can you David, I think it would be very helpful if you explained a little bit about your early work, how you t- started analyzing dressage scoring and looked at the scoring
3: systems. Right. So, so um, as as Wayne said way back, uh, he he wrote an article in um, uh, in in New Addressage. I read it, in fact, about whether or not judges should be using half points. So whether or not there should be half points in in dressage tests. And I started to wonder whether or not judges were using the whole points as well as they could. Now, were they being limited by whole points? Were the uh, you know would would they would they be able to make use of half points if they got them? Uh, or if and if they could make use of half points, could they make use of one tenth points or, or such thing? So, so I just started uh, thinking about that and I got hold of um, uh, I started getting hold of uh, data initially initially from Klaie um, uh, van Andel and dressage direct, who has this service where she has uh, you know, basically publishes all of the big cdi results and from there, I started to build a picture of what um, of how how consistent judges were with each other really. Um, how often they were close together, how often they were apart, um, how how much the standard deviation, the spread of those scores, but differences between the judges was, uh, and I came, I realized uh, well, the first the first sort of b- big factor to realize is that uh, our very best judges um, they they have a, what's called a standard deviation, a spread of about one and a half percent or so between themselves and the other four judges. And, and really, they don't. They don't manage to do better than that. So we have to assume that that's something to do with, with, with how the system works. And uh, you know, these are our best judges, and this is what they can do. Um, <clears throat> and so a natural, by the way, a natural consequence of the fact that about the, the best judges are like one and a half to one point seven percent consistent with the others means that by the time you put five judges together, the final score has a has a real actually has a precision of about. 0. .8% 0. .9% something like that. And so when when people differ by less than that type of number it really doesn't mean anything at all. Um, mm. they they're really so the got, same score. If you got 68.8 it is the same as having
2: 68 exactly yeah, yeah
3: yeah. And so and so of course on the day one one rider will get ranked in one position and one will get ranked in another because they have those two different scores. But um yeah. uh, since I since I I'd like to believe that the important thing is the score and and, uh, and the ranking is just something which drops out of that uh, it's also important to realize that there's not much difference between those two numbers
2: Do you um, find a difference David between the the top judges what they call five star or hmm? these to be o judges and normal judges i you know the cdi judges the the four star
3: judges yeah yeah there, there, there are differences um, on, on average uh, well we have taken into account the fact that often the five star judges um, uh, judge a lot of, judge <laughs> some of our best writers uh, and and go to some of the biggest shows, although they also of course go around and, and they go to a lot of other shows as well. Um, undoubtedly I see that uh, there are judges who are more and less consistent with their colleagues year in, year out. I can I can look over, I've now actually now got about, I don't know, six, seven years of data and I can follow, that. I can see that some of them do what you might call a better job than others uh on average over a long period of time um uh, we sort of studied along the way also there are factors like uh you know where the judge sits is often something that comes up people say, well you know of course yes, exactly. if I'm sitting on the side if i'm sitting on the side, I see a different thing from the judge at sea and and this is absolutely true um, they do see different things it doesn't actually um translate into. Uh, an important effect by the time you looked over a large number of competitions because judges move around to different positions, and so uh, it it doesn 't actually become important, although you can all imagine that there are certain figures which will be judged differently by the judges uh e and b and the judge at C, for example, obviously the center line ones and things like that mm-hmm.
2: uh, so there <clears throat> is a, i mean you you have shown there is certainly a difference in where you sit mm-hmm. um but also you've also identified some of the weaknesses in the system. Do do you think really the system itself is open to be changed or can it be tweaked a little bit more to be slightly better? Do you think it's a fundamental revision or is it just a modification?
3: Well, as we we all know, and probably for very good reason, um, uh, a big sport like this has to move very carefully and very slowly, uh, as is correct. It should not be lurching from one place to another. Um, And so... One of the things that we did to study the type of thing you're talking about, looking at different ways of doing judging, was there was this uh, the dressage task force uh, a couple of years ago put together um, a special test event in Arken, which I think you were you were certainly there because so the pictures of us yeah. sitting on the stand uh, watching it. And um, <clears throat> in that event, we tra- we we looked at a number of possibilities. We looked at the possibility of using half points, and as you know, of course, half points have come in. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I think I think that generally uh, a good thing um, not everybody agrees but uh, I, th- I from my observation is um, it will take about a year actually with this year's data we can start to study we can uh, we have now a whole year's data with half points and I will now so shortly start to study whether or not it's, it's what sort of changes it, it has made one
2: of, one of the interesting comments I've heard on half points is I've seen since they've come in the average scores do seem to have increased but mm-hmm. a lot of writers said, my scores are even worse than they used to be. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's to be expected. If, if some are going to go up, some are going to go down, because yeah. if the accuracy is there, you're going to get both
3: directions. It's a fact. Yeah, That's right. That's right. And, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's sort of inevitable. Um, uh, I think that, um, yeah, I, I, as I say, I, I see, you, you see that as the year has gone on, judges are more comfortable using the half point scores so at the beginning of the year the, there are, there are whole tests with very few half point scores, and now we see them a lot more um, obviously if if i don 't know if everybody knows it, but basically the average rest score in a cdi is is pretty well close to sixty five percent and uh, of course if everybody if every judge gave everybody six point five then they'd get sixty five percent and it wouldn 't really be a sport it wouldn 't be very uh, very helpful okay. um, so we uh, <clears throat> um, what, I, what, what I'm – my, my estimate is, but I really want to do the numbers more, is that judges are going basically up by a half point about as often as they go down. I think, in fact, they're more likely to go up than they are to go down. But that's uh, that's really a gut feeling. I haven't been able to prove that yet. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we saw that in the test that. event. That was the, at the test event, we saw that that was the case. Of course, mm. uh, yeah. I'd love to see the results when you get those. David, yeah, just, I think,
2: I'd, I'd yeah. like to ask you about your latest, your latest venture. Because I mm. think the work you did up until this point was the foundation for this. But this really is something that I think is going to change the sport. And you've created a company uh, called Global Dressage Analytics. Right. And I know that's in conjunction with World Dressage Masters and uh, Akiko Yamazaki. Yeah. And it has very noble aims. The two yeah. areas I've seen you going into are using dressage analytics, analyzing people's tests, so you can improve their personal performance, and secondly, at a, a very high level, using it to choose Olympic teams or major championship teams. Could you just give a little bit of background to that?
3: Sure. Yeah. So this is sort of a, a direct follow-on, as as I as I've done my as I've been studying dressage along the way. Um, uh, as initially, I, I came at it trying to understand. How well the judges were doing, uh, and uh, along the way, you know, we, we suddenly have. I think we found different different ways that can be improved in judging. But um, what I saw, mm, as importantly as the differences between the judges, was the fact that they were often very consistent and very coherent. And that, um... as I started to look over a period of a year or so, I could see, in individual riders, as we start to study the individual figure scores, you see that uh, I can track whether a rider is. Getting better or getting worse at a particular, you know, at a particular, at a particular figure or figure type, should we say, passage, PF, whatever. Um, and so you can start to see these patterns. And uh, by the time you take the average of the judges, um, these patterns start to come out quite clearly. Um, and uh, uh, and I can see, you know, I can clearly see people getting better and worse. And so I started to think, how can we use this? And I, I um, as <clears> say, <throat> we put together, we discussed, uh, so two years ago I got approached by Akika Yamasaki after I gave a talk at the Global Dressage Forum. And uh, she said, she came to me to, to see uh, what could be done. Was there anything that we could learn from my analysis that could help um, her and Stefan Peters in the preparation for the, uh, for the World Equestrian Games? And so... Uh, what we did was we went back and collected all of his uh, scores that we could find, and all of the all of the public scores that we could find of the of his obvious competitors, and uh, we started to try to understand how he compared and where where were his strengths and where were his weaknesses in comparison with the other riders, and this was really this was not done with a fancy program. This was done with lots of Excel and spreadsheets and bits of paper and pencil, And, time. and so uh, as we did that, uh, I realised that. Uh, uh, the critical thing, for, critical thing for for Stefan, which which is, sorry, I think I think in retrospect some people had seen was was that the pirouettes were not the strongest thing for 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 Stefan for Ravel. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in the freestyle, of course, the pirouettes there are two. There were two. There's a left and a right. They come with double coefficients. They also add into the degree of difficulty because you you sort of have to do double pirouettes. Uh, and so they they come in with an overall weight of about five or so, or maybe more, five to six. So they're by far the most important figure, and they were the one which is having the most trouble with. And uh, we went through this, and it took me it took me quite a while to con- to show, to convince, sorry, uh, <coughs> um, to convince Stefan that uh, that this was indeed <laughs> the problem. But then he, he got to realize, and he understood it he understood it, understood it very carefully, and uh, clearly, rather. And so uh, what he did, he then went away and did all the work. And he really, he took his pirouettes uh, uh, in a period of about uh, seven months, eight months. He took them up by about um, one and a half percent, each pirouette. Uh, One and a half points, I mean, sorry. Uh, Which by the time you throw in a factor, a coefficient of five or more, is a really big, uh, you know, makes a big difference on his final score. What's Um, the difference between a bronze and a gold? Exactly. And so that was, that was, that was, that was that was fun, and that caused me to sit back and think. Well, if I can, if we can do this for Stefan, uh, what about other people? So I then turned. I had then already turned to look at my own, um, the other end of the spectrum. My, my youngest daughter, who was uh, then uh, twelve, and still is twelve, actually. Um, <clears throat> my youngest daughter had just started the pony, pony international pony riding, and I started seeing whether I could do the same things for her. I could understand. Uh, in her t- in her sense, what were her strengths and weaknesses? What was getting better? What was getting worse? Uh, and the such like. And then I I, I saw a, obviously a quite different pattern of things for her than I'd seen for Stefan, um, but it was just as useful. I mean, I was able to show her that uh, uh, that when we looked at a series of half a dozen tests, that in in each one she she was sort of coming back frustrated because she wasn't getting the scores she wanted, but in fact I showed her that in each one it was a different thing that wasn't working properly and that mm. if we looked at the best things she did in each test um, and put them together then then in fact uh, you know she the pony was she and the pony if they could pull it all together on one day were capable of a 68% instead of the 63s and 62s that she was getting mm. and that was a very encouraging thing I think for for her um, yeah. to realize what was possible and, and then about uh, six months after that you know she did she put it all together and the pony did exactly that and uh, uh, mm-hmm. She didn't make the mistakes, and, uh, and so I thought, "Wow, this is actually, this is <laughs> this actually has some yeah. some some benefit." So what I we put together,
2: the, yeah. I was talking, just to throw in. I was speaking to Dane Rawlins today, who I know you met last week at the yeah. show in Drachten. Yeah, and he said exactly the same thing, but in the opposite way. He comes back from a show. Dane, by the way, is the Uh, an international dressage rider competing for Ireland and runs Hickstead, the international CDI five-star at Hickstead, England. And he said that he gets really focused on whatever went wrong in his last test. And what he thinks he wants to get from your analysis is a trend of where things are going wrong. So maybe his pirouettes in this last show, or actually it turns out it was his two tempes and his... Um, I think one temp piece. And he, doesn't, he He thinks he'll get more mileage by knowing, on average, that's not his main area. His main area is Passage, and he should be continuing to gently focus on that and not concentrate on this specific test that went wrong.
3: Right. Right. And so this is what we've done now. So we've put together. Um, as I say, following up with these ideas with my daughter and with Stefan, we put together this company, Global Dressage Analytics. We're going to make a launch of our, of our website, um, in fact, in Florida, at the, uh, at the, at the big CDI five-star just coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and <clears throat> with the, with basically, well, with that software, you can, uh, you can look at your history. You can see where you're going. And, but then there are, neat, I, I think, neat tools which allow you to simulate what will happen in the future. Um, mm. so you can see uh, you can you, you've got a, a a representation on the screen which shows you what you've got in the past um, you can see for example that there might be some figure which may be going up or maybe going down but it has a very large spread of scores so mm. the, the spread of scores you get is also interesting, it's just as interesting maybe as the score you get because Absolutely. if you have a large spread it means that you haven't really mastered this one sometimes you can do it really well but but some unfortunately there are times when it doesn't come together properly and so this can sort of point you towards the figures where, um, uh, where, there is a, where there's potentially, inverted commas, easy progress to make. You just, yeah. just It isn't necessarily easy. It may be six months' work or nine months' work you've got to do. But for me, I think if yeah. I
2: knew that, I would say, right, if I can sometimes get an eight, but sometimes I get a five, I probably can get an easy seven. I'd back off going for the eight until I got the seven consistently.
3: Right, exactly. So your exactly. averages. Right, and I see some figures which are, well, I see some scores where riders are, are, are getting better, getting worse. Sometimes when they have a better, they can, they, can, they can get better or worse with a very small range of scores. So they're really it's really a mastery of the thing which is improving, hmm. uh, and so this is really nice. And then the other ones, as I say, where there's just a lot more fluctuation. And by putting those two things together, I think you can learn a little bit about where uh, where your short-term quick gains are mm. and where the long-term things you have to do are. Because in order to move from where you are now, uh, A, to where you want to be at B, um, you know, you've, got to, you've got to make this much change And so you can see uh, what you're going to have to do. And can so, I get
2: this as a national level rider
3: as well, or can I only get it for CDIs? Right. So what we're doing... Um, uh, Right now, of course, the, the scores I have are, are, are international scores, but we're, we're, it will be possible for uh, national writers, initially for FEI tests, but we're going to, of course, we want to expand it to basically all of the national tests that, that are out there, um, for you to upload your own scores uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a relatively simple way, um, keep track of them yourself and learn the same things. and Use the same tools that can be used by, uh, by top riders should be available for, uh, will be available for you know, amateur riders of any level, actually. Um, maybe some countries actually
2: collect those scores and you could maybe liaise with the National Federations and get them automatically <coughs> sent to you.
3: Right. Well, unfortunately, one of the things I think I've, I've, I've come across is the fact that the the, the detailed figure-by-figure figure scores are not typically kept uh, for in any country that I know of. Uh, the, 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 having said that, there must be some which do because I've Bound to be proven wrong, but most of them do not, and uh, which 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 uh, makes a couple of things complicated. It, it makes analysis of their judging very hard because I believe that it's uh, the most important thing is not necessarily whether the judges agree on the final score. That's that should just be an end result of whether they agreed all the way through the test. Exactly. Uh, and they followed the same road. So without the figure by figure scores, it's extremely hard to um, to really. Uh, um, quantify how well the judges are doing, yeah. you know, and likewise for riders. But, uh, but, but one of the really exciting things that we have is that uh, now both the German and the Dutch Olympic teams are, are using our toolkit, are using our tools. Um, so they're sort of uh, guinea pigs. Um, that I think uh, one of the nice things I have about the, t- the type of work we do is that we can work with two teams who would naturally be uh, quite competitive with each other. Uh, mm. But w- all we do is try to improve each rider. We don't try to push down another one. And no, so, you do. Uh, you do
2: have a big thing on confidentiality, I know, mm, in your oh,
3: right, um, your document. Right. Yeah, exactly. We 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 we've, we've made it so that, for example, whereas uh, the you know the public scores that everybody sees about where um, <clears throat> uh, you know where final scores those are public, anybody can use them and see them. But the details are inside your ride. For example, I think uh, you know if 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 Wayne Shannon's um, Pirouettes are getting better or worse. uh, That's that's interesting for him. Um, It's probably very bad information to put in front of a judge, um, because (laughs) I would much prefer, and the judges I'm sure would also prefer, to judge uh, the judge Wayne Shannon's uh, pirouettes based on what they see in front of them, uh, and not what they think it's supposed to be, because that's what David Stickland's trend says. So so we we have we have to very carefully separate those things out and make certain that that this type of detailed analysis is really for the rider and for the trainer involved
2: but you are providing this not with named riders but you are providing aggregated or average information to judges for judges training aren't you
3: that right that's the other thing is we can we can use the same same type of tool the same type of information to to do, do judges training we're not yet doing judges training like this but i think there's a lot we can uh, we can do uh, one of the things i would like to do is to tie video in with these things as well so that we can uh, start to um, so that for example you could, uh, you could go back and look at all of the pirouettes that scored a 9 or a 7 or a 4 last year and, uh, and learn a little bit about what your colleagues thought about how to judge those type of things. No,
2: I think that would be the ultimate training guide. Mm-hmm. And if you yeah. get trainers to buy into that and riders to buy into that, you could actually say, these are the videos, I th- with permission from the riders, of course, because, yes. as you say, you don't to highlight it. Right. The, um, Can we all agree that this pirouette is a 9 and for these reasons? because that's the one thing this sport really doesn't have. We don't have a, um, a standard which is defined by video and agreed by everyone. Right, exactly.
3: And, uh, yeah. So those are the exciting things we're doing at the moment. As I say, um, in end of January, we'll make an initial release, and sometime in February, it should be possible for basically any CDI rider to log in and, and, and uh, get an account and look at their own, start to look at their own details. And is there a cost to um, this? Um, there will be initially initial um, initial sign-ups. We you know we'll give people a sort of a, a free period to try to understand whether or not it makes sense for them and, and right. useful for them. So we'll give people an easy way in. I hope. Obviously, the the big national Olympic teams are, are 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 paying for this. It's not a it's not it takes some effort to put together, and we've got a lot more things we want to do. Actually, we've got a lot more ideas still to come. Um, so we have to cover so our expenses. But
2: this yeah. could be the first year that Olympic teams are selected using professional data analysis tools.
3: Um, I hope so. Yeah, I hope. I hope
2: that's what happens. Um, well, I hope because I don't think Britain is using this. At least not at this moment. Yeah. I hope that the silver and the bronze medalists can do that, but the gold don't.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it depends, of course. Yeah. At the moment, yeah, Britain looks just. Uh, Looks in a very nice position for the gold. And so, uh, yeah.
2: uh, My view is, and if Britain is listening, then, um, and I would certainly push this to them, this is something that I think Britain has to be at the forefront of. We have to take advantage of these things. And the information that we will get, not only to help selectors, but to help individual riders improve their average score, it's gold dust. We have to invest in this. It's peanuts. The cost of doing it is peanuts compared to the return.
3: I, I, I think so too, and obviously I have an interest in saying that, but I think it's true. Um, one of the um, uh, sorry, I lost my thread. Go ahead. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I think that's it. I think I'm I'm very impressed, and I, I like this whole idea. I think it's nice that we have um, an objective way of measuring what we do, not only for riders. But also for the judges, because I think I know all the judges who have seen this approach like it. They like the ability to understand how they do and where they fit in and what they're good at and what they're not good at. Um, I think trainers are starting to see that this is a very good thing for them. I know you've got the Dutch uh, team and the German teams. Um, I think the more you present this, the better it is. I know you've presented at the Global Dressage Forum twice now. Both times you've been received very well. It, it is the future. I would like to see. If, if I have a personal wish list, would be that the next step is you get involved in developing a code of points to the point that we can do it. And it's something that the sport really does have to t- does have to take that next step, and ultimately that will lead, I think, to a different way of judging.
3: Right. I mean, maybe one of the future peoples that uh, Chris can have on her show is Dane himself. And he's been doing some interesting work on on that as well. Actually, trying to understand it. without the code of points. Um, yes. Uh, you know, we've been through that. You and I have been through this many times. we discussed it at the Global Dress Forum. Obviously, when we, when we came with, a, with a, a proposal for a different way of doing it, we were decomposing the, uh, the figures into different marks, The world wasn't, should we say, the world wasn't ready for that yet? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, a long way of being ready maybe for maybe it. Maybe they won't ever be, but that was, a, it was an approach to the problem. Yeah. Um, there are, as you say, you know, something, something like 40-something ways to get a seventh, you know, you know, in a passage. Yeah and uh, uh, it is very hard to imagine uh, of course a judge does not calculate that that tree and work out that in that way they get there by other routes um and sometimes those other routes can introduce um uh, inadvertently biases because uh, you know because, uh, because they can be uh, I use the word bias and it's not in a negative sense but, but in the sense that uh, I don't mean I don't mean a deliberate bias yeah, I, mean, think, I think people
2: Inge Wolfram uh, was recently on Dressage Radio, so people who listen to that particular show will know what dressage biases are. And it's the natural biases that come because we're human. Yeah. And they're not personal, they're not uh, any kind of uh, corruption. It is just that humans, we have certain natural biases.
3: Yeah. And uh, Uh, one of of my my biggest, one of my big uh, hang-ups at the moment is the collective marks. These are the things ah. that I find I find uh I, I believe that collective marks tend to get applied twice. Okay. Yes. Uh once when the right this is now my gut feeling. I can't prove this with numbers. But when when the writers go in, there's already a collective mark mm-hmm. uh in the judge's head, it can't help it. Uh and that's what Inge would say some sort of one of the bi- one of the sources of uh, sort of bias that happens. And then of course at the end they get the actual collective marks assigned to their school.
2: Yes. Um, well, it, it's, a, it's a logical nonsense. You, you When you judge a test, and there are 36 movements in a test, or whatever number there are, and you give a specific mark, mark for each of them, and then you take a view at the end on four separate marks, which are meant to be the average of what you just judged, the right. computer can do that far more quickly and accurately. Right. If it was something different, for instance, if the position and use of the aids, position of the rider and use of the aids, was really separately judged, and so you said... Well, this rider is sitting very beautifully. They're upright. The hands don't move. They they look as though they're really in tune. That would be different, but we don't. We say, right, that rider got a seventy-five percent test. That's a seven and a half or an eight for that rider. Then this is this is just marking the same thing twice. It's pointless.
3: Yeah, yeah. If it was exactly the same thing twice, that would be okay because it wouldn't change anything. But Mm. you also see sometimes, of course, that you know the the well-established rider will be getting. uh, is getting good marks for the, for the rider's seat and aids uh, yeah. uh, whereas the less well established one is not yet, yet they may be getting the same ultimate performance out of the horse and so yes. you have to sort of question a little bit what this means actually you know?
2: <laughs> yeah uh, it, it is Or you have a, a more difficult ride with something going on and you ride it extremely well your test yeah. was only 62% but actually you, you, you performed it really very well maybe that's a 75 Right. The, or maybe more, I, I don't know. But the point is it should be different, otherwise there is no point having it. Right. So yeah, and is- it's the same with the other collective. And I, I do see, I think you're right, that when, when a horse comes into the arena and you look at its trot and then its canter and its walk, you're giving a mark to the quality of that particular pace. And if it has a trot for an eight, then, and if it performs very well, the movement, then you'd be giving those eights.
3: Mm-hmm. If
2: it performs it badly, you, you'd be dropping down. Mm-hmm. The, however, what you won't do is take a horse with a pace, a trot for a six, and suddenly see a beautiful shoulder in and give it an eight. That doesn't exist.
3: Right.
2: So, right. in a sense, this is another thing, really, I think another big issue in the sport. Do we judge correct training correctly? Or do we judge the movement of the horse by far and away more important than the correct training? And I, I think, if, Chris, if that's a subject you want to bring up in a, in a future debate, it would be one well worth having because it affects how we breed horses and what kind of horses we breed and how we how we judge them.
0: Most definitely, and I think this is a natural follow-up to this conversation and indeed the ones we had with Inga recently. So I, I think this this is all helpful because not only does it affect the top-level horses, it affects people at the lower end of the sport, where the majority of our listeners are, of course, around the world. Yeah, yeah it, it does At the
2: bottom, not the bottom, at the starting point, all of our young horses, almost as a three-year-old, they look as though they're Grand Prix. And are we breeding the right type? So many are not strong enough to make it to the top. So are we doing something wrong? Are we expecting something? And I think this is a debate. I don't know the answer. Um, I think this is something that maybe it would be a good subject for um, Kira Kirkland to come on and discuss that because she has very clear ideas, having run the Swedish national stud at Flinger and um, has trained many international horses. And I know the conversations I've had with her, she has a very particular view about that. And I think if you want to do a conversation on that, that would be something we'd be very interested in.
0: Certainly open, open to that, Wayne, and uh, indeed having Dane on as well to continue this series of uh, very thought-provoking conversations. Uh, well, I want to yeah. thank you, David, very much indeed for, for sharing what you're doing with us and wish you well with the global dressage analytics and perhaps we can catch up with you after the olympics and see how it was all panned out
3: yeah well i hope i hope that the, when the germans and dutch catch up with me they're happy
1: people so that's yes,
0: true, right? indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I hope they're going catching up with you to buy you a drink not after your scalp yes exactly yeah as opposed to <laughs>
3: any other reason by the way may i may i just do one if i have 30 seconds more Certainly. you were talking about the fact of course that many 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 people in dressage are not out there riding CDIs. They're they're riding, uh, they're riding, they're enjoying themselves, and but nevertheless trying to do better and better each week uh, on their own horses. And uh, this is very close to my heart because you know I have, I, I live, my wife runs a stable. We have people of all sorts of levels, and um, uh, where I we shouldn't lose. I think it must be obvious, but I think that uh, judging is is such a crucial part. Uh, first of all, we have to have judging. The sport doesn't exist without judging. That's obvious. Um, but good judging is really, really important for every level of the sport, from the bottom to the top. Um, one of the other reasons I sort of, sort of got into this was my, the very first test my my youngest daughter ever did. Um, you know, so there, there were 17 people in the field. There were two judges, and she came first and 17th between the two judges. And so, um, because because we know the sport, we could sort of say. Well, it's okay, you know. Uh, <clears throat> we'll try to understand that, and uh, we moved on. But other people could very easily just get driven away from the sport by things like that, okay? Nice. And uh, because it doesn't make sense to them. And uh, and so, I would like to be able to use the tools that we're using here at the, for the top-level judges to do the same thing to help uh, judges further at the beginning of the system as well, to to uh, to, get, to help them be more consistent with their colleagues, to help them recognise. Um, you know what is an eight and a seven and a six uh, at the different levels of the sport that exist. Um, uh, one of the things that we can do uh, with uh, with my statistical analysis, I can t- go to a judge and say, you know, you actually need some uh, work on the uh, on the collected walk scoring, okay? Because there you're not using the same range of scores as the others on average. And so you can also point out to people um, where there's potentially a problem. And all the judges I know uh, want to do the best job they possibly can. And so um, if you can point out to them where there might be problems, you give them a chance to improve and to get better. And, w- and if you can't point out to them those things, then, then really we're asking them to work in a vacuum without any chance to improve. Uh, and so we shouldn't be surprised if they don't, if they, if they don't manage to get better. If we so don't the get
2: them, like, all all international judges should really be a subscriber to your service.
3: Well, I'm, I'm one of the one of the things that I will certainly be offering with my connections to the FBI is exactly that. Basically, all the FBI judges will get uh, a subscription to uh, so they can they can understand not to look at whether um, Wayne or Stefan are getting better or worse than their pirouettes, but to understand how they're doing in relation to their colleagues. Uh, very good.
0: Yeah. Well, keep us informed, and uh, maybe you know we can get you back on here to further this conversation. And we certainly will take you up on the suggestions for other guests. And a uh, lot of lot of thought provoking topics there, Wayne. Very good. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you so thank much. You. Yeah. Thank you, David.
2: Thank you very much, Chris.
0: And you can post your reaction to the topics that we cover on the show, not just this episode, but previous episodes, of course. And you can always listen to past episodes by downloading them from iTunes or going to the website. And your comments can be posted on our Facebook fan page, as indeed Eileen Quigley did. Uh, she posted a, a remark after listening to Inga Wolfram and Catherine Haddad on last week's episode. And she said, as a psychology major and dressage rider, this show just opened a whole new door for me. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you, Eileen, for leaving your comments there. Always love to hear from you and your reaction to the topics that we cover here on the show. Our show notes, as always, are at dressageradio.com and the links to the guests and also to other shows here on the Horse Radio Network. I'm going to be heading to Wellington, Florida now to cover the World Dressage Masters and the CDI Three Star. We're going to catch up with some of the regulars here on the Dressage Radio Show, Heather Blitz, JJ Tate, Debbie McDonald, and lots, lots more who will be there This week and next, and I will also be hosting some shows from down there too. That's it for this week. I'm Chris Stafford. Thank you for listening.